So where we left off last week um, was uh, the Buddha having sat under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, having had his own realization of uh, what he saw to be the truth of the beginning of suffering and the end, cause of suffering and the end of suffering, staying there in the neighborhood of uh, Bodh Gaya for some period of days. I actually think it was 40 days, but I'm not exactly sure that. Uh, to consolidate his understanding, thinking during that time about whether or not he would go, uh, he would continue, he would try to teach other people, feeling overwhelmed by the amount of uh, suffering in the world and the tremendous uh, level of greed, hatred, and delusion that he felt was present. And presumably, according to the legend, thought, I wonder if I should do this. Um, does it make any sense for me to go and teach? And he had a m- mysterious vision, according to the legend, of legend of some divine beings that spoke to him and said that um, if he if he knew something about the end of suffering, then it was uh, then he was obligated to go to teach for the benefit of those who would understand. So that's the beginning of his uh, the story of his legendary travels. And he traveled for 50 years and taught all over the place. Um, died in his 80s, according to the legend. And uh, the whole of the Pali Canon, really stories about where he went and what he said and who he taught. And for the most part, the sermons are not practice sermons. They just tell, this is the way it is. Um, or they make a particular point. He taught, taught a lot in... Um, um, uh, told stories that made certain points. He taught in parables a lot. But there's a very lovely, um, where we left off last night, last week, was I was telling, uh, I was telling about the fact that uh, he had done six years of ascetic practice before his time of enlightenment. And... Uh, three years with one teacher and three years with another teacher, during which time, presumably, he had uh, developed all kinds of capacities to be with every kind of um, uncomfortable circumstances and keep his mind still. He could sit in the blazing sun. He could not eat more than one rice grain a week. So you know this has to be a legend, but it makes a point about um, being able to do tremendous austerities and finally realizing that the mind capable of withdrawing into itself, detaching from the world and withstanding austerities without pain was not what he wanted to teach. It was not what liberated the heart. So then he left, and when he left, he left both of his teachers, there were a group of five monks with whom he had been practicing who... uh, five other ascetics, who uh, scorned him because he was leaving. Anyway, he left, he went to Bodh Gaya, he had his whole experience, which we talked about last week, with withstood all the forces of Mara, which I see actually as the analogy of the way in which, in my life, I am uh, always aware of those forces that might be uh, prompting me to forget that I could be peaceful and get involved in greed, hatred, and delusion. He 
triumphs and he goes off to uh, teach. As he wandered, he came at length to Benares in the deer park at Isipatana, where the bhikkhus of the group of five were. This, by the way, is uh, The Life of the Buddha by Bhikkhu Nanamoli, where the group of five were. They saw him coming at a distance. Then they agreed amongst themselves, friends, here comes the monk Gautama, who became self-indulgent, gave up the struggle, and reverted to luxury. We sh- <laughs> Rose is laughing because, I mean, he went and sat down and said, I'm not getting up from this place until I get enlightened. He had a bowl of milk and rice. That was the luxury that he had. Reverted to luxury. We should not pay. We ought not to pay homage to him, or rise up for him, or receive his bowl and outer robe. Still, a seat can be prepared. Let him sit down if he likes. But as soon as the Buddha approached, they found themselves unable to keep their pact. One went to meet him, took his bowl, outer robe, another prepared a seat, another set out water, footstool, and towel. The Buddha sat down on the seat prepared and washed his feet. They addressed him by name and as friend. And he said, and this, this is, a, I love this line. When this was said, he said to them, Bhikkhus, do not address a perfect one by name as friend. Perfect one is accomplished and fully enlightened. It's I look at the, I read this and I think oh, you know by Western sensitivities you don't come and tell everyone you're perfect and listen you should really exalt me more homage is called for here, but you know it's a myth and you know it's a way it's a legend it's a way to talk. Listen, because the deathless has been attained, I shall instruct you. I shall teach you the law. By practicing as you are instructed, you will, by realizing it yourself, here and now, through direct knowledge, enter upon and abide in that supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the house life into homelessness. So then they say, okay, instruct us. And I'm going to read you from another. There are different... This is a... um, this is a prose poem, Bhikkhu Nanamoli, the account of his life. There are accounts of the setting in motion, the turning of the wheel, which is that first sermon, in various places in the canon. Bhikkhus, he said, monks, there are two extremes which should not be followed by one who has gone forth. Which two? The pursuit of sensual pleasures which is the way of worldlings, and the, and the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagatha, that means the accomplished one, has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, which leads to direct knowledge, which leads to uh, liberation, which is nibbana, which is nirvana, and then he goes to, and then he goes on and teaches them the four noble truths. What's come to be called the four noble truths of the Buddha, and the fourth of which, which is the eightfold path. So this is one. This is one rendition of it. There are different kinds of. Uh, there are different translations. Now, friends, because this is the noble truth of the origin 
of suffering. I'm going to read you another one. I decided that the second translation was better. Oh, this is, this is a good point. And we're back on the Buddha saying, avoid those two extremes. This should not be misunderstood as the, to mean that the Buddha expected his followers to give up material, all of his followers to give up material pleasures and retire to a forest without enjoying this life. That's an important thing. Uh, whatever, he's just making the point that however the enjoying sensual pleasures are, they're distinctly short-lived and so never completely satisfying. And so however much we might in our lives enjoy them, there's no sense that one shouldn't live a worldly life to be able to see that there is a more profound enjoyment, which is the enjoyment of a peaceful and loving heart. Just to hold in a context. And that self-mortification, which is um, uh, really fatigues the body and makes it tired, is... Um, too far on the scale of regulating the body. There's a way to lead um, a regulated life that supports the mind in its seeing clearly. Not so far as here, but not, uh, not heedlessly. The fifth of the precepts that one takes as a lay practitioner is I undertake the precept to avoid intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. And in classical texts, those intoxicants are always um, um, described as alcohol, fermented drink. But I could think of so many ways in which we intoxicate the mind uh, with um, stuff that isn't um, that that isn't food or drink. What do you think? What what do you? (laughs) Straight out. (laughs) Preoccupation with preoccupation with. Because there's no way that, that the Buddha says it's not appropriate to be sexual, except if you're a monk or whatever. But pre- and it certainly does cloud the mind. It is a potent enough force in terms of mind clouding. Maybe this is a chance to say the, fa- the four of the other precepts that people take is I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. That's pretty clear. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not freely given. It means I won't exploit. And then it has two very particular precepts. I undertake the precept to abstain from exploitive or abusive speech, incorrect speech is what it says. And I undertake the precept to refrain from incorrect sexual expression. And it doesn't say what incorrect sexual expression is. And it doesn't have, it doesn't say anything about what your form of sexual expression is or it just says, for me at least, sexual expression that's exploitive or abusive. And it may, and the last one that says uh, avoiding uh, intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. I think the ones, uh, the one about speech and the one about sexual expression are in there as particular ones. You could say, why, why, why not leave them out? There are lots of other things we do. Why not? Uh, uh, take specific vows about other things. I think that um, the power of sexuality is so strong, 
and it's it's a power to really confuse the mind and uh, cause heedless behavior is so particularly strong in in healthy people that it required a, a precept of its own. Not to say that it wasn't a vital piece of um, physical equipment in a world, but that it's a powerful of enough force. Um, anybody here? Well, no, I don't want to have that. Let's have a show of hands. <laughs> that would be a bad thing. Let's put it another way. Um, who here thinks it's true that uh, sexual intoxication is a powerful force. There you go. Now we don't have to say who here made a fool of themselves one time or another. <laughs> or thought of making a fool of themselves one time or another. It's a very powerful force. I think that the you have to word these questions very carefully. <laughs> I thought about the one about speech because we speak so much. So I think that the, that the prohibition against... Uh, Heedless speech is there. It's a good time to do another list. The Buddha said that before admonishing anyone, you should reflect in these five ways. Uh, In due season will I speak, not out of season. For his or her benefit will I speak, not for their loss. Uh, Gently will I speak, not harshly. In truth will I speak, not falsely. Uh, in kindness will I speak, not in anger. So a lot of times when I tell that to people, they say, if I thought about all those things first, I would never admonish, which I actually think is the point of that. That, uh, that actually, in the end, you would share with the other person, which is a kind of a new age word. You would tell people what you're thinking about, and you would instruct them. I, I like that word. It's the, the translation from the Pali usually says, I'll instruct you, not I'll teach you. Okay. Now we'll do this way. What is the middle way? No, this is not the, this is not the one either. I will tell you the Four Noble Truths. I like, my, I like mine better than either of those two that I just read. <laughs> Now, that's the truth. I'll read you the, I'll read you the, the, the scripture version. Uh, this is a noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Association with the loathed is suffering. Dissociation from the loved is so, uh, from the loved. Wait a minute. Association with the loathed is suffering, when you have to put up with something that you don't want to. Dissociation from the loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, the five categories of clinging, the five uh, skandhas when they are involved, are suffering. What I think that means is incarnate life, by its very nature, is often painful. And... uh, even when it isn't painful, even in moments when it's pleasant, since its essential nature is temporal and everything is ephemeral, we are always losing. We're always losing. The, the losses of life... One of my good friends who's a, a well-known 
uh, Dharma teacher, tells about uh, a thought he had uh, just after his son was born. He said that he and his wife had wanted this, a child for a long time. And finally, uh, they had the good fortune to become pregnant and to have this child. And the child was born and well and healthy. And they came they overnight in the hospital and they came home. And everyone was at home and uh, the child had just been fed and resting in uh, his father's arms and looking at the child and feeling so full of love and delight and suffused with joy. And uh, maybe this is from being too much immersed in Dharma or whatever. But he said, I heard go through my mind the thought from here on downhill all the way. And it's a kind of a bleak thought, but you know, maybe he wouldn't have noticed it if he wasn't a Dharma teacher. But to look in everything and know, however wonderful it is, because it's in form, is the beginning of its end. You know, when you look at the daffodils now, you buy daffodils in the market and you bring them home. They won't be there three days from now. They'll 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 have all withered. Um, you look at everything in its freshness and newness. Um, you know we like you know we when people want to mock a, um, soap operas, they say they talk about uh, you know a, a scene will end, and people will say, "I'm so in love with you. I will love you for the rest of my life." And you know that if you don't turn on that soap opera for six months and you turn it on, they're going to be in the middle of some dreadful crisis, probably a week later. Or people will say, I've I've never been happier. Now my life is perfect. And then they have a commercial break. And then in the next segment, someone is in a car accident or something. And you laugh at it. You say, well, this is soap operas. But actually, it's the way the life is. that You never know from one minute to the next what it is. Everything... One of my granddaughters is graduating from grade school uh, this semester. She was born yesterday. How can she be graduating from grade school? You know, so quite so fast. And the whole of life is more or less like that. So I th- when I read this, life is suffering, birth is suffering, death is suffering. I think probably we've lost something in two and a half millennia of cultural shift and in translation. And in 500 years between the Buddha having said this and anyone having written it down into scripture because there was word of mouth for 500 years. But I think what, what I, how I like to say that first noble truth is that the nature of life is that it's challenging. It's always challenging. When you get born, you have to learn to do this and learn to do that and learn to do that. And there's a certain joy in growing up and learning and perfecting skills. And then you come into the... You know, but uh, in sports they call that you're at the top of your game. But then you're not. You're over the top of the game. There used to be uh, birthday cards. At 35 they said over the top. Now, actually when I was 35, one of my my children, they thought it was very funny, made a birthday cake with a, um, in the shape of a mountain. And... uh, with people on it, with me on the other side, you know, and the, with these over the hill was what it said. That was 35 over the hill. So, <laughs> I don't know where I am now. <laughs> but now I think I do, huh? You're on the next hill. On the next hill. <laughs> over that one too. <laughs> 
but and and the idea of challenges being on the one hand exciting because I can do something new. Okay, now I'm an adult. I can do this now. Now I you know I could either look at this period of my own life and say this is a great challenge. What do I do now? Uh, and part of this great challenge and part of this great challenge involves the recognizing that there are things that I can't do now that I used to be able to do now. Bunches of my friends are up skiing this week, which is something that I used to do a lot, and I loved it, and I wish I could, but I can't. You know, the shoulder doesn't work, this is wrong, and that's wrong. It's a thing that I did for a lot of years, and I can't do anymore. And when I think about it, I think, oh. And then I think, well, I went so many times, I had a good time, da, da, da. the mind tells itself a few stories. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, there's a little piece that says, oh, I wish I would do that. It's not about not having a piece in the mind that says, oh. I think it's about that piece saying, oh, that's a little bit of yearning. It's all right. I can deal with that. It's the insatiable need in the mind to have it be other. Really, that's the second noble truth. First noble truth is things are challenging because they're changing. And with the constant change is a certain amount of accommodating. I think we spend the whole life accommodating to loss. It's a sort of a bleak way to put it, but if you think about it, we're getting used to this and getting used to this and getting used to that and accommodating and accommodating. <clears throat> think about... Um, read a haiku. Let me see. What was it? Um, only tears and loss punctuated by full moons, laughter, and bird song. And they go, oh, that's a kind of a... But I think there's a way of recognizing that it's a series of accommodations, hopes and dreams and fulfillments and losses. And that that's not the problem. When I said to one of my teachers at one point, you know, it's all so sad. Everything, no matter how wonderful it is, doesn't everything's dying. I said, it's so sad. He said, it's not sad, it's just true. You know, sad is what we add to it with a story as if it could be otherwise. But it can't be otherwise. In incarnate form, there is old age, sickness, and death. There is loss from what is dear to us. There is the disconnection from what we'd like to have. We yearn for what we love and we sometimes don't get it. We get stuck with what we don't want and we can't get rid of it. There is suffering. But the suffering, I think, no, there is challenge. This is one of the problems of reading the translations. I'd like to, th- I'd like to say incarnate life, life is challenging. Suffering is what happens when the mind cannot make room for the tension involved in being separated from what it likes or saddled with what it doesn't like. It's the insatiable need in the mind to have things other than what they are. The ability to say, this is what it is. Even, it isn't what I wanted, but it's what I... Really, especially, to be able to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And know that it isn't what I wanted. And know even that I don't like it. 
but not to have an embittered heart about it. That's actually why I love to listen to that metta chant before. And uh, I think so much about that tension between the arising of wisdom and the cultivation of a non-embittered heart, sweetening the heart, to go along with the wisdom. The wisdom itself comes out a little cold to me, that somehow there needs to be a way to uh, warm the heart or sweeten it so that it can stand the wisdom. Otherwise, it's kind of cold wisdom. Knowing that everything arises and passes away does not take away the grief when someone you love dies. You know that, you know, all the, it's a, I think, I, I don't think about saying ever to anybody in the middle of any kind of a grief or any kind of a struggle, you know this is going to pass. It would be a terrible thing to say to somebody, I think. Because in the moment, it doesn't feel like it's going to pass. It feels like it's going to be there forever. That uh, Sometimes people have said to me in the middle of some huge struggle or turmoil in their lives, I know that everything passes, but I think that I may pass before this passes. <laughs> and the thing is that sometimes people pass before it passes. You know, that there's a way in which the, the the suffering now this is really the this is really the problem of translation why I was looking for a better one because really there's a difference between uh, in English between pain and suffering between challenge and suffering that suffering is a particular word dukkha is a particular word for tension in the mind that that arises in response to what the mind and the heart can't hold it's not the event. Things happen, and then there's what happens in the mind and heart about the event. And, the, um, you know, there's a line in, um, in, in, uh, in the chant that, um, that's on that metta chant where she says, all individuals are heir to their karma. It means things happen because of other things. It's a lawful cosmos. Sometimes it takes a while for that for people to like that, you know, like, uh-oh, it's a done deal and fate. It's not a done deal, I don't think, because things happen according to other things that happen, and every action counts, and what I do and you do today makes tomorrow. It isn't all written in advance, I don't think. But the idea that every that karma is true, that there's a lawfulness about this, that... Um, People find, I find, supportive in times of uh, tremendous turmoil. So it's a custom in Judaism to um, respond to the news that someone has died by um, praising God as the true judge, which is really very quite similar to saying karma is true. It's a lawful cosmos. This isn't a mistake doesn't mean I'm not terribly devastated to hear this news. I think it's the movement in the mind to keep it balanced when it gets shocked like that. It says, whoa, look what happened. Okay, this is what happens in a natural world. This is what happens because of lawful events. Something happens and something happens and something happens. Sometimes grievous events happen. But everything is lawful. 
It actually helps me from... Period, helps me. So first noble truth, life is suffering. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering is tanha. Tanha is the Pali word for craving. It's translated as craving. Because um, it's often mistranslated as desire. And it sounds like uh, desires are bad things. And we have lots of desires, you know. Someone came and said today, what desires do you have? Well, all right. <laughs> How many wishes do I get? You know, and where can I go? And, you know, a, a weekend in London, that'd be nice. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of things. So desire arising is not a problem. It actually has to do with insatiable need in the mind to have something other than what it is. To have something else be true than what's true. Sometimes something happens and you say, I can't stand that this is happening. That's really the suffering. It's extra to what happened. Not being able to stand what happened, what is happening. It must be another way. I must have that thing that I think I want. Or I must get rid of this thing that I don't have. I think about it as it comes... Um, you know, the, the word that comes to mind is acceptance. The, the third noble truth, by the way, is the, the end of suffering is the end of, uh, is, uh, is possible. Is that the mind is trainable to not struggle. To, and the, you know, the words that come to mind in terms of not struggle is um, surrender or acceptance. Um, I read um, I read a part of the new tricycle magazine. It's very good. It just it's just out. And I read a, a piece of an article early this morning about uh, someone whose ministry was prison ministry, uh, and uh, who had spent time prison monk, Fleet Mall. Um, who was imprisoned for 14 years. Uh, I I don't want to tell you the whole story. It's interesting. So if you go get the tricycle and read about it, he he actually, he was trafficking in drugs in a peculiar way. He was spending half a year studying Buddhism with Chogam Trumpa in uh, (laughs) Boulder and supporting his family by trafficking in drugs. So it's a little bit problematic to begin with to think about it. But this was also in the late 70s and 60s. People did different things. And that community was a different kind of a community. But he spent 14 years in prison. What were the conditions like? It was an incredibly chaotic environment. Five two-man cells, a concrete floor, everything else welded steel. goes on to tell about it. Just... uh, no windows, just a steel door with a metal slot, almost no room to walk. Prisoners could have radios and televisions so they'd keep them going 24 hours a day. Some people stayed up all night watching movies and others watched cartoons in the morning. Others watched soap operas in the afternoon. There was constant noise. It was pretty much of a hell realm. My mind was just nuts. I couldn't sleep. This is in the county jail. And then I was sentenced to 25 years without parole. Even with good time, if I stayed out of trouble, I knew I'd be in for 14 years. 
And that felt like an eternity. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. And and the interviewer says, and in the situation you began to meditate, did you have any doubt that you would continue to practice in prison? He said, no. He said, I was so devastated by what I had done to my son, by the waste I had made of my life. Practice became my lifeline. I knew from the minute I got locked up that I had to pursue it with great seriousness. I began to sit two, three, four hours a day. It talked about... And now it goes on to say how he worked, how the other people were affected by him, how that consolidated for him his dedication to do prison ministry after he was out. And he's now out and really quite active. Um, but the crucial piece was at, the, at some point he said, okay, I'm not going to be mad at this. I'm going to use it. Here I am. And in the worst possible circumstances, but instead of being... You could just be embittered the whole time. You can say, here I am. I'm, I, I accept. I'll do it. All of the, you know, it reminds me of the stories of people practicing under all kinds of circumstances. People who endured long prison terms. The Nelson Mandela's of the world who come out with their heart unembittered, who say, somehow, I am going to use this time to consolidate the fact that my heart is going to be in a good place and not otherwise. The idea that you could give up suffering, that kind of suffering which is the struggle in the mind that riles against what's ha- rails against what's happening and choose to be choose a non-struggling mind instead, which is a mind that rests in the midst of dire circumstances. Not having to do with the circumstances getting better, having to do with the mind getting better. People can do it in jail. They can do it in uh, terrible situations of uh, physical distress. Well, some of you here a couple of weeks ago when I read from... uh, the uh, diving bell and the butterfly, you hear? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a book. Um, uh, there's a book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Um, the author's name is Bobby B A U B Y. Uh, he was the French editor of L magazine, and when he was 43 years old, he had a massive stroke and uh, with a big damage to his cerebral cortex and could not move any part of his body at all. Couldn't speak, couldn't turn, couldn't eat and died three years later but needed to be in constant care in a care facility for three years. But he could think and he could hear and he could blink his left eye. That's the only thing he could do. And he worked out with his friends uh, like a Morse code, like a series of eye blinks to let them know what letter, and he would spell out words. And he dictated a book. And he dictated that particular book, which I read a piece to you about. And mostly the book, at the end, there are a few little times when he says, you know, sometimes I really cry. I cry. But for the most part, he is remembering the recipes for the best meal he ever ate, or the, a drive in the country, choosing to put his mind in a place that is free. 
His body is completely unfree. It's, it's, it's more frightening to me to think about that than to think about prison. But his mind is not free. And to think about that ability to have a, non, to have a free mind when you are totally imprisoned. And really, uh, what I think uh, the promise of a liberated mind is, is that you are not held, you're not held hostage by what comes up. That the stuff of life, outside and inside, things that happen to you, the, the events of your body, even the thoughts of your mind and the memories, can come and go without the essential mind's peace being disturbed. I'm trying to remember the line from Emily Dickinson from a few weeks ago. Um, Futile the winds to the heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart, rowing in Eden. Remember that? That the heart in port, I think, is the heart that rests in peace, that doesn't struggle. The third noble truth is that that's a possibility. Life is challenging. We take challenges and make them into sufferings. Not because we want to. It's not, I mean, if anybody, anybody, I mean, nobody purposely does that. If we said, listen, this water has a magic herb. If you take a drink of it, the habits of the mind all disappear. Everybody would have a drink. I'm sure I would be the first. But the, the news that you could undo the habits of your mind so that you're not held hostage by it, regardless of your circumstances, and when you're not held hostage of it, you're, but the, the fruit of it is that your own good heart really comes out. Here's Bobby recalling for his child, really, um, what was the best meal of his life? What was the best day of his life? That what he was thinking about on that last day that he was well, on his way to pick up his child to spend the day with him, and how he was thinking about him. What an amazing thing to be able to come from that place and give that sort of a gift. But you really need a heart that's not caught in all of the conditioning. Every moment of mindfulness is um, a race is a moment of conditioning. So the fourth of the four noble truths is the noble truth of the path to the end of suffering. The traditional way of saying the path is in eight pieces. If you've gone up to the prayer wheel ever, which by the way you might like to know is full of prayers, in the uh, months leading up to it being installed there, People were invited to write prayers on pieces of paper and put them in there. And it is sealed and with some <laughs> maximum sealing, so we're quite sure that they're all dry and safe in there. Someday, um, maybe who knows when, someone will read the prayers that were made on uh, the 4th of July in uh, 2000, Sandra? Uh, When we had our first thing up in the hall, 2000, 2001. Oh, it was before that. It was before that. It was like 98. 98, we put that up? Okay. 99. Okay. What were the prayers in, in uh, 1999? And if you go, you'll notice that it has eight spokes on it, and the eight spokes are right understanding, right aspiration. 
No, we don't call it that. We call it wise. It's better. Because right makes the other one wrong. And it's nicer if you say wise. Wise understanding, wise aspiration, wise action, wise, wise speech. Uh, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood. Wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. And those particular eight are the, are the Four Noble Truths, which will be what we'll do in more detail next week. But three of them are uh, sila pra- uh, practices, are um, morality practices, virtue practices. Three of them are mind practice practices, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right mindfulness is presumably the practice that we teach most of all here. It's really important, and this is going to be part of what I'll hope to teach next week, is that it's really part of right concentration. You can't be mindful without being concentrated a certain amount, and you can't have that without right effort, because right effort is really the effort to see what's in the mind and cultivate what is wholesome and put out what is not wholesome. And notice what is wholesome that's missing, cultivate it and put it in. It's actually quite clear about um, sweetening the mind, taking out, putting aside from the mind what is unwholesome and putting into it what is wholesome. Sometimes people think about uh, mindfulness practice as being kind of the hapless recipient of whatever arises, just gritting the teeth. Sometimes I like to read Horton Hatches the Egg for uh, a text here. And you remember that Horton sits through all kinds of vicissitudes of weather because he's been given a bird egg to sit on and he's an elephant and uh, the egg in the end hatches but uh, I've decided that Horton is the wrong simile for mindfulness because Horton when you see is gritting his teeth and sitting through ice and snow and he didn't like it at all and mindfulness is not gritting the teeth it's really composing the mind with enough concentration they can sit and say, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. I am not contesting it. I'm not contesting it. It's happening. It's lawful that it's happening. I will take such and such an action so that in the future this might not be happening, but right now this is happening. It's lawful. I will sweeten the mind with this. I'll put this in it. I'll take this out of it. That will cause the mind to sweeten. I will make the mind more expansive. That's probably the last image I'd like to end with. The um, it's the image of the salt that uh, that's often used to talk about uh, meditation practice. If you take salt and you put a teaspoon of salt in a teacup, the tea gets very bitter. If you put a teaspoon of salt in a lake, you don't notice. So that really it's the practice of keeping the mind spacious enough and relaxed enough so that salt can be in it without it being such a big problem and the mind still stays essentially sweet. So the end of the story of the Four Noble Truths and the reading is very exciting. He says all those Four Noble Truths and he explains at some length all those Eightfold Paths, so we'll come and do that again next week. But at the end of the explaining... It says, this is what, he, this is what the, the Buddha had said. And the bhikkhus of the group of five were glad, and they delighted in his words. And while this 
this course was being delivered, the hearts of the bhikkhus of the group of five were liberated from taints through not clinging. And then there were six arahats, six accomplished ones in the world. Isn't that exciting? It says that over and over in the text that he goes from place to place and he teaches groups of people. It says a thousand people came, this many people came. And often at the end of a discourse it will say, and as he finished speaking, into the, uh, in the eyes of, of some other, a hundred people arose the spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma and their hearts, through not clinging, <laughs> were liberated from taints. That's a really, I mean, I would like my heart not to cling. The, the notion of, of suffering is the heart that clings to having it another way. And their hearts, through not clinging, because you say, okay, this is the way it is, are then liberated from any further greed or hatred or delusion. And you stay awake, and then you see with more clarity the point of that wheel of the Eightfold Path will be that it doesn't go from the beginning to the end. It's actually an eightfold circle. And that with increasing insight, you come back to deepened understanding. And that the deepened understanding that you come back to over and over again is a more and more profound understanding of suffering. And really, the, it's, it's, it seems so clear to me from the teachings that it's the, really the intuition, the, the, the direct knowing of how much suffering there is because of confusion that inspires kindness in the heart, that inspires doing something in the world. That really, when, when we do a dedication of merit, I'll do it now because it's the end of our time together. For whatever merit we accrue for the practice we did together, of sitting together, studying together, thinking about these things together, meditating together, um, aligning our hearts in uh, the direction of our intention for the good, may whatever merit we accrue be uh, given freely as a gift for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful and may all beings be happy and may all beings come to the end of suffering. Thank you very much. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 18, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.